Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Trend Micro. At CDW, we get that patch-together security can leave gaps in protection. I patch things together all the time, like this broken desk chair. Some duct tape, good as new. Orchestrated by CDW, Trend Micro Cloud One provides unified protection and better visibility across cloud services. It's all-in-one cloud security that can hold its own. Okay. Want to buy some gently used office furniture? No, thanks. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash trend micro. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we, we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe, and how much money does does our current water system cost in the U.S.? What changes can we make and how we use water? I just listened to a fantastic episode called Water in Peace, Hydropolitics. It was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water. We've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions. And one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources. So now there's all of these uncomfortable, to say the least, conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources. Fantastic episode. The Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app today on the program i'm in reno getting a very interesting and fresh perspective on immigration and oddly enough on burning man and how they might be connected from uh, the very interesting anthropologist Deborah Baim. Uh, this is a bit embarrassing throughout the episode. I pronounced her name incorrectly because I went to high school with someone who spelt their name the exact same way and they pronounced it Beam. I thought that was a universal thing. Turns out I was wrong. Don't make assumptions unless you're assuming that the episode that you're about to listen to is going to be great because it is. I've heard it. I was there. Thank you guys for listening. Please share. Enjoy. Deborah Bame. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. 
Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. And here I am with Deborah Beam. And she is an anthropologist at um, the University of Reno. I'm here during the apocalypse. Uh, there's all sorts of fires. <laughs> yes, going. we have smoke. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what's going on? Uh, you know, I, was, I got my hair cut today. And they were talking. They were asking me about, like, smoke and how I've been handling it and I was like I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and then I showed up here on, on campus I was like oh the now smoke. you know yes I we are having it. a lot of fires that are unfortunately we're having a lot of fires in the area and they're blowing our direction it's uh this is I mean this isn't going to air for months so people don't <laughs> google this and be like fires in Reno um <laughs> But I um, I was in Sydney one time and fires came over from um, the Blue Mountains like three hours away. Mm-hmm. And it went from sunny day to just um, the apocalypse. And it's an eerie. And this is the only other time that I've seen something like this. So we're here during the end times. And <laughs> I'm here in the Knowledge Center, the Center of Knowledge Indeed. at um, the University of Reno talking to... Deborah Beam about her um, work and her book, um, uh, Intimate Migration, uh, which is uh, in the subtitle Gender, Family, and Illegality Among Transnationalism. Mexicans, don't take it personally. I have poor verbal skills. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm, I'm here talking with her about her work and what she does. So could you tell me, um, first off, just a little bit more about what your book is about? Well, the book came out of research that I did when I was studying for my uh, PhD, um, but then extended after that. Uh, and I was especially interested in how it is that intimate lives are affected by policies, by immigration, by movement across the border. And so I was working with families closely and children and trying to understand the kinds of changes that were happening in people's lives as a result of migration. So uh, this, this is going to be um, a really good and interesting one because this is the first time where I have a guest where I know like nothing. You're going to have to tell me <laughs> Everything. I'm going to be learning so much, and I'm very excited about that. But I don't even know. So I turned off the news about four years ago because I was watching it 24-7 mm-hmm. and writing angry rants all of the time and alienating everyone that I know. And um, so I turned off the news, made my life better in many ways. But, however, I am uh, not so informed with um, the state of politics Today, could you talk a little bit about where um, the policies stand right now? Well, in some ways, the policies haven't changed a lot in four years okay. um, that there's been. Well, and the other thing is that likely the kind of research that I do isn't that that information rarely gets to the public. That's the other kind of important issue, I think, about the kind of research that anthropologists do with immigrant communities or other kinds of communities. Um, but in terms of policy you know, there, there. I think most people agree that there needs to be some kind of immigration reform. People from the right, people from the left feel like things aren't working the way that they are. And yet it seems to be an endeavor that no one is capable of doing. Um, you know, they, Congress is not working. It's um, The president has often said that he's going to take some kind of uh, presidential action. But 
you know, and executive elections action. are going to come yep. up and they're like, mm-hmm. no, let's stay away from that. Right? And so that isn't happening. And in fact, this I'm currently working on a book about deportation and um, with some of the same families I worked with for this first book um, that now have been, their lives have been affected by deportation. And I kept thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be historical if I don't get the book out. And it isn't. You know, it just continues. I think that the 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 way that our our government is removing people, the way that lives are devastated by deportation, those kinds of issues are not are not going away. And you know, the last time we had immigration reform was in the 1980s. Um, there was an amnesty that took place then, and I don't think when we have close to 12 million people living in this country without documents, you know, there's a problem. There's so there's a problem that you know. It's no not, matter we're not which ta- way you look at it, right, There's a problem, right? We're, what, regardless of what your political perspective is, um, I think that you know this is not some kind of esoteric event. It's not like a few people randomly came across the border. It's a much larger social, economic, historical issue, and um, I, I don't I don't know how to predict when the government will take action. I like I was just. And, and it, you know, if this isn't your area, that's fine. But I, I'm curious if um, if you could give me any insight into, like, kind of what the procedure is. If you're mm-hmm. in Mexico and you want to immigrate, it, it, how difficult is that? Well, this is an interesting question because I think m- many people in the public say, well, why don't they'll say why don't immigrants get in line and do it the right way why don't they do it the why don't they go through the legal quote unquote procedures um, and the reality is is that for the people i work with from north central mexico rural communities farmers working poor folks um, there is no path to doing that um, there is you you can maybe get a tourist visa although of the families that i know of who have applied for a tourist visa um, I only know one family actually in in, the, in a town, for example, of 250 who ever had even a tourist visa approved. But in terms of a visa that would actually be a path to citizenship, it's just simply not possible. There just aren't paths to, to citizenship in that way. So the really the only way that one does end up getting on a path to citizenship is through family relations. So if a U.S. citizen, for example, marries someone who is not a citizen of the United States, there is a path to citizenship eventually if, once they are able to get residency and then after having residency for a certain amount of time, then they can naturalize as a U.S. citizen. But that, um, that is becoming increasingly difficult as well. For example, some of the people I work with who have been deported, they uh, if they marry or if someone has been here for say, 14 years, and they haven't had documents during that time. If they marry a U.S. citizen, then they're being barred from the country for up to a decade sometimes. And so even in that case, it isn't always a straightforward process. So it's really complicated, and there aren't, there aren't a lot of options for most people to do it, quote-unquote, the right way. That's, uh, that's insane to me because I've, I've traveled internationally a bunch, and as an American, I just get to go wherever. And mm-hmm. it's like I go and, and and tell dick jokes and dumb dive bars in Ireland or whatever, 
And I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. People just fill out a few things for mm-hmm. me, and I like sign a thing, and <laughs> sure, let me in, and I party and do all sorts of and illegal activity. It, yes, and no one, no one says boo about it. And then to to have someone that's poor trying to feed their family and uh, struggling in life and wants to come and work 12 hours a day for nothing and and we're saying no to that. Right. I mean there I mean there are people who come a small number of people come on guest worker visas um but there are lots of problems with that too because they they might come and connect with people here in this country. Let's say they marry someone, um, then they might go back to Mexico and then come back again. But they might come back undocumented. So there's um, there just really is no secure way. And you're right that you know we those of us who have U.S. passports have incredible flexibility to move around the world. We have a, a lot of freedoms. I mean, if you look at um, it's obviously a very different kind of movement, again, very different economically and socially and historically. But when you look at Americans that are people from the United States who are going to Mexico, although that number is reducing given the violence there, but, but you know, when you look at tourists who are going from the U.S. to Mexico or even people who are going to live there for extended periods of time, there's large populations of retired people in certain parts of Mexico from the United States. Those folks move quite freely. I mean, you do have to – there are visa – requirements if you're going to be long-term in Mexico, but it's a much different process. And, you know, you can come up with a sort of status that allows you to be there legally uh, in, a, in, a, in a straightforward way compared to what happens here in the United States. Um, so I, I was curious, what, what goes into becoming an anthropologist and, and mm. what do you do as an anthropologist? Because to me, it seems like such a cool job. It's like <laughs> it's you true. get to travel and right. uh, I love people watching and yes. watching people and uh, yeah. people watching and watching people are the same thing for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so what is it if you're you're if you're doing anthropological work on Shane Moss and you want to understand me and my people and right. my culture, uh, how do you go about doing that? Well, you're right that we have, I'm very fortunate, right? As an anthropologist, you have a, uh, there's kind of endless possibilities of the kinds of things you could study and you could, the kinds of questions you could ask. Um, I mean, there are, there's a wide range of who is an anthropologist. Um, In other words, I'm a cultural anthropologist, but we have, there are people who are physical anthropologists or archaeologists. We have linguistic anthropologists in our field. So it's a very diverse field. But as a cultural anthrop- a linguistic anthropologist, anthropologist, someone who looks at language and culture and mm. the way that uh, those interact, mm. um, essentially how culture sh- affects language and um, in some cases how language influences culture as well. So how, that dialectic. I guess, um, I guess it's reported... Uh, self-reported by some people that are bilingual that they find that their personalities change mm, when they're mm-hmm. using. Because you're bilingual, are you? I, I do, yes, I do research in in Spanish for the most part in Mexico and some here in the U.S. with immigrants here Do you feel well. like when you switch languages? Do you feel, I, I mean, I feel like you I, would be yes. consciously aware of it. But. Definitely. I mean, I think that, um, well, of course, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, so there's, some insecurities that come with speaking Spanish, obviously, since it's the language I learned as a second language, um, which I think gives you a lot of insight into the experience of people when they come here and learn English. I mean, I think often we're really hard on people who come to this country and learn English, but um, 
it's not an easy thing to learn a language when you're an adult. Um, and, no. um, and that's part of the anthropological endeavor, right? That language is one of the, one of the most important ways you can learn about cultural experience or, or, or a particular group's um, experiences is you really need to be able to speak the language. And so um, I'm just thinking of like going <laughs> to Paris and Rome and stuff that I've been to and just how incredibly lazy <laughs> I was about trying to learn a few words. And uh, I went with a girlfriend to Rome one time and she was like making so, an effort. Um, and she started saying something to someone and they're like, Oh, are you Spanish? She was speaking in Spanish, not Italian, to uh, a waitress. <laughs> well, it, can sort, it might that might work better than some connections, I guess. <laughs> you know, trying to speak like I don't know Spanish in Germany, for example, or something right. like that. But but yeah, um, well, language. I think that language. I've I've certainly had some kind of strange experiences in language or or, mis or misunderstandings that can be somewhat based on language but might be more cultural or even beyond that um, in terms of misunderstandings about experiences or misreading something that someone does. Any fun stories off the top of your mm, head? I had, well, there was an experience I had. Actually, I was about six months into doing research the first time that I went um, to rural oh, Mexico. Can, can you? Oh, yeah. Not to interrupt, but I would. I'm very curious about that history. Uh -huh. And so maybe if you could just explain that history of how you started. Oh, sure. Um, so how I started doing research more generally, or and the actual how you, research how you started I did in going to Mexico and studying. Well, I I I think it kind of goes back further because I. Um, after I grad, I didn't ever study Spanish um, in college or anything like that. And then when I was after college, I went with a program called World Teach to Ecuador, and I was teaching English at a university. And I that's when I first learned Spanish. Um, and then I became very interested in issues of about Latin America. And I went to get a master's in Latin American studies, and then from there uh, went to study anthropology. So that's how I got into my field. Um, but in terms of how I started doing research in Mexico, I actually met, um, I met folks when I was living in Albuquerque. Uh, I did my graduate work at the University of New Mexico. And when I was living in Albuquerque, I was volunteering with an organization there called the Albuquerque Border City Project. It was an immigrant advocacy group. And um, I was teaching English and ESL, uh, ESL and citizenship classes to, uh, to immigrants, to recent people who had come relatively recently. And um, and they kept saying, oh, you need to go to this community we're from in Mexico. And then I ultimately entered a PhD program in, in anthropology and started to talk to them about, well, I think I actually am going to go <laughs> to your community and, and try and get a sense of what's happening around these questions of immigration. So um, like much anthropological work, it came out of my experiences and relationships with folks on the ground. I didn't initially intend to study that, but uh, those were the kind of questions that people led me to. So um, so the first time I went to Mexico was in 2001, and I went there and lived for a year. Um, or the first time I went to the field site where I've been to Mexico prior to that, to, okay. or parts of Mexico, to DFA and to Puebla and to no, not to Puebla, to Cuernavaca and some other cities. Um, but then I went to this rural community to do a year of doctoral research. Um, and so I'd been there about six months. And, um, Tied it and, together. 
you, you <laughs> nice thought work. I wasn't going to come back, but I did. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, I had been there about six months and this woman in the community, she's kind of eccentric. And I think she, you know, sometimes it's hard to read these cues um, as, as an outsider or as someone who's not from the community, but she, um, she seems somewhat eccentric in the opinion of others as well, the people in her community, right? She's, she's an interesting individual. And she, uh, one time I came out uh, to the community and she kind of was calling me over and yelling my name. And um, she had this look of kind of urgency, you know, and so I, I, I went over there and she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. You know, remember we went and visited my mother. Um, we went and visited my mother last week and you uh, were complimenting her birds. And so I sort of was thinking about that and um, because I, to be honest, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the birds in, you know, they have these birds that they catch from the wild and they put into little cages and it always is kind of unsettling to me, to be honest, which isn't, I guess, a very good thing to say as an anthropologist right. that, you know, you're, but I, I just, you know, I, I, I may have said something about the birds, but I don't remember really complimenting the birds exactly. But uh, but in any event, I probably was making small talk and saying, oh, you have a lot of birds or something along those lines. Well, she said, yeah, ever since you visited her, one of the birds stopped singing. And um, and I, I thought, well, what on earth would I have to do with that? You know, how could I be responsible for this bird singing or not? And she, and she said, so um, I've got the bird here in the house. So can you come in, please? Because I need you to spit on it. And, <laughs> and I said, spit on it, you know, and, and I kind of, st- I, you know, I was just so stunned by it. And, and she turned to her daughter and she said, yeah, she doesn't understand. Um, and I said, no, no, I understand the words. I just don't understand why you want me to spit on the bird. And she's like, because it stops singing. And, uh, and so we kind of had this, like, it kept going back and forth. And, um, and so I think this is a really good example of these kind of, I mean, I'll, tell you what happened next, but um, but I think it's a good example of these kinds of both language and cultural misunderstandings that can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Because I had no idea what was going on, um, even though I did understand the words. Uh, and so so then she said to me, okay, so you're going to spit on the bird, right? And I, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not really a spitter. I, <laughs> I mean, some people might be better at that than others. Um, and so I, uh, or I don't know, maybe no one's, <laughs> I don't know. Are you a good spitter? I, I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I, I think that kind of went out uh, after the Old West. Yeah, uh, yeah. So in the canteen. <laughs> so I, I, I have not developed my skills as a spitter. So, um, so I was really horrified. I was, you know, how am I going to do this? But I'm in this community. I'm doing research here. Obviously, I'm going to respect what she's saying and I'm going to (laughs) have to spit on the bird. I mean, I don't really know what else I can do. And so she pulls the little bird out and the bird is like in her hands and the palm of her hands. It was a tiny little bird. Um, And I sort of tried to spit on it. And then she said, no, 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 no. Like, I, I mean, it's more of a blow. I think it was like like a little bit of air kind of on the bird. And um, and she said, no, 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 with saliva. It's got to have a lot of saliva. So, um, you know, here I am just thinking, what is going on? You know, I think this woman thinks I'm a witch. That was what I was most concerned about. Um, so I finally did spit on it. Um, and she kind of rubbed it in, <laughs> which is very gross. But um, and then she... She put it back in its cage, and we were standing there chatting, and that bird started singing instantly. It started singing. Uh. 
<laughs> and and I looked at her and I said, the bird is singing. And she said, of course it is. That's why I had you come over. And um, <laughs> And so I walked back to the house where I was staying and I was terrified. I, I so thought, you're like, I am a witch. I'm a witch. I I have been Magic power, doing sure. things to animals all around the community, <laughs> and I have no idea. I had no idea that I had this capability. The dogs and, stopped barking, and well, I see. Here's the problem. So finally, I so I went home and I talked to first. I talked to my husband, um, who's also from the U.S., and he. He was and saying, also an anthropologist. He is also an anthropologist, yes. So he he provides a, a lot of support when uh, when I've been in the field, obviously, and um, has a lot to contribute uh, to what's going on. But he um, he said, uh, well, I think we need to talk to some other folks about what's happening. And I talked to the woman we were staying with at the time, and you know, I I was I didn't bring it up for a few days because I was trying to figure out how to how to approach it the topic with her and she's and finally I brought it up and she said oh yeah yeah you you have ojo which means like eye or some people in some parts of Mexico it's called mal ojo like evil eye um (laughs) and so I, of course I was really concerned about that because I thought there were yeah, bad intentions behind go to a it. Doctor. Right. And um and she said, Oh no, you can't control it. So there's nothing you can do anyway. You know, she was very matter of fact about it. And she said, My father, for example, she said, Some people have it with kids, other people have it with animals. You just happen to have it with animals. And I was like, Well, at least I don't have it with kids. I mean, there's that going for me, but um, because I was working with kids for my research, so that would not have been helpful. Um and and then she said, yeah, and if you'll notice when we're around, like my father, for example, because he has a hole, you'll notice he sort of preemptively touches kids. And, and sure enough, the next time I saw her father, I noticed he would, he would lick his finger and then he would um, rub it on the forehead of, of kids all around. And, um, or he would go up touching their foreheads um, as he greeted them. And that was his way of preemptively... Uh, you know, of of preventing any kind of ojo from happening, even though he had that that power. So <laughs> this is uh, way crazier than I expected this interview to get. This is wonderful. <laughs> Go on. So so yeah. So then so then I said, okay. So I have this with animals, and she says, and I said, well, wait a minute. Because then I started to remember different experiences that had happened there. And one of the things that had happened a few weeks earlier is that she had shown me um, piglets that had been born. <laughs> that, that, that one of the neighbors had had piglets. So they piglets. didn't boink because they saw yours? Well, no, worse. Because apparently, because I said, like the piglets. And she said, yeah, the piglets, basically she showed them to me. And then um, the next week the mother laid on them and suffocated all the piglets. and. And so I said, oh, do you think that the, that I had something to do with those piglets? You know, could I have been the reason the piglets died? And she said, you know, she kind of shrugged her shoulders. It was so matter like, of fact. Probably, She's like, yeah. well, yeah, but what can you do about it? So <laughs> and then we then we started going through. It was like the dog that was hit by the Coca-Cola truck. That Like there were all these kinds of things that had happened. I mean, the reality is, is that it's a rural community and animals, there's a lot of animals and animals, things happen to animals, right? We like to find connections. But, but at the same time, I do think there is some kind of connection there, you know, that in that cultural frame, that there was, there was a logic to what was happening in a way, you know, um, 
a lot of people have speculated about Ojo as being something where in communities that that you if you have people who are envious of other people's objects or children or animals, um, that that could be detrimental to the community, right? So Ojo is maybe a way to keep a check on that, right? To to um, to ensure that people don't kind of express that envy because that could be that could be damaging to the community and to the way that the community operates and the ties that the community has. So, um, you know, that's been the way some anthropologists and other social scientists have looked at something like Ojo. Um, and, you know, whether or not that was a, a kind of a, I don't know if it was even, I don't think it was conscious at all, but maybe a, a test or a way to keep me in check, you know, that just make sure that you don't kind of cross certain boundaries here. Um. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I am completely thrown, <laughs> and that is uh, that's wonderful. That is uh, that's a remarkable yeah. story. Um, so, it, it, as you were speaking, I was I was thinking when you mentioned, um, that, you know, you you found the birds kind of a little unsettling that culture. Mm-hmm. And as an anthropologist, you're kind of that's not your pro- place. Probably yeah. supposed to remain unbiased. Right? Well, or. If not, or, I think it's it's interesting because I, I, you know, when I teach like introduction to cultural anthropology, students will often say, well, don't you as anthropologists, don't you want to be objective? Um, and I think the kind of research that we do, the fact that we are the the tool to study other people's experiences in a lot of ways, we're not, you kind of, you can't be entirely objective and you don't want to be, right? Because you bring your, your own experiences and your own um, subjectivity to that endeavor. And I think that's a positive. Right. And, and I mean, as an aside, and I know that I have colleagues who would disagree with me, but even people who think that their work is objective, there's probably some subjectivity in that as well, right? That of you're course. designing Every, the project everything. and you're the one asking the questions. So, um, so I think that that kind of objectivity, subjectivity is a, you know, it's a blurry line, I guess, in terms of a researcher. But, but yes, as anthropologists, the notion of cultural relativity is central to what we do, right? If you go in judging another... Well, you certainly, maybe, maybe I mean, judging might be one thing and kind of unavoidable. You certainly are probably trying to avoid changing or influencing. Well, right? and yeah... Yes and no. I mean, this is what I think can being an anthropologist in the current age. I mean, even the work that I do. So I work with anthrop- I work with immigrants. I'm seeing a lot about um, you know people's rights being uh, eroded and those kinds of things. I, I think that as anthropologists, we're also trying to balance when do we step in? You know, when do you have a responsibility to? Uh, articulate what you've witnessed and and get engaged in social questions. Um, so I think that's a, you know, there's a lot of contradictions or tensions that um, probably all researchers have, but I think when you're an anthropologist, when you're working directly with people, it's extremely complicated. It's it's messy. It, it, it isn't always easy. The ethical questions can overlap and and become intertwined in ways that you know, it's not always straightforward how how you're going to work that out, um, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the bird or the, yeah, 
I tried, I, I obviously you don't want to be judgmental of, um, and you want to try to, again, you want to try to understand from within the cultural logic why things are happening or, or what's causing people to act in certain ways. But sometimes you end up in situations where regardless of cultural, you know, something like child abuse or something like that, you know, you, then it becomes a lot more difficult to, to take that kind of stand. Yeah, right. Well, that's just yeah. how it goes yeah. down here. Yeah, yeah. right. You, yeah. Um, well, uh, that is what's interesting to me about your work because so much in, of science is so much about, um, about getting these large sample sizes right. and, and, you know, crunching this huge amount of data and the more the better and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And I, I guess from just my own life experience of, of uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town in um, in Wisconsin, and um, I was you know it's all white people, and I lived in a bit of a bubble in a small town, and and um, I was surrounded by a lot of um, uh, people that hadn't really gotten out there much and mm-hmm. seen much of the world, and there's certainly a lot of um, ignorance and prejudice and all of that. I mean, that's my opinion of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just, that's what I was kind of surrounded. If my grandma was interviewing you right now, she'd be like, so how'd you get mixed up with those Mexicans? <laughs> right. <laughs> and there'd be nothing wrong with that in her mind. Right. And it's like, it, you know, if there's someone that wasn't white and, and the conversations about that person, you got to know it immediately because that's in the first sentence is what race they are. Like, you right. know, like, Denny, she just married this black guy. And it's never like, she married a black guy, like right. real excited mm-hmm. about. So that's kind of, that was my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it influenced me early on. And and I feel like I had, I feel like I was a prejudiced person when I was younger and, um, and just didn't have much exposure and kind of to fit in with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's... That was kind of all the kids in the schoolyard were telling racist jokes and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I was 20 years old, I got a job in a factory in, um, in a small town, like 45 minutes outside of my hometown. And that was my first time even really ever being around a Mexican at all, let alone a whole bunch of them. And then like being trained by, yeah, I made a lot of friends. I was trained by, um, you know, several Mexicans and worked with them and and would go to bars afterwards and have drinks and you know, Christmas parties and all all of that sort of thing. And and when you compare um, sometimes, um, sometimes scientists might say, well, that's just an anecdotal thing. And it, it, what you need is this large sample size. Well, early mm-hmm. on, what I had was this large, broad view and it wasn't until I got to know um, a few individuals that I really started learning something about life and about that culture. Well and you've articulated the kind of foundation of our field that as anthropology is always looking at the specific or the local to understand the broader issues and you're you're describing exactly that that you went from kind of not having an understanding of the more particular or local to then having that and it and it took you to a different place on a broad 
level. Um, and I think that's what the real strength is of, of anthropology is that it can tell us about things that, you know, more macro analyses never would be able to. Um, you know, I think there's certainly a role for multiple perspectives and paradigms and ways of doing research. Um, but again, the kinds of questions that I'm interested in, I've done a lot of work about gender relations, for example. You know, you can't do easily, you can't, you can't easily conduct large-scale quantitative studies about the sort of everyday experiences of when men and women interact or something like that or, you know, a father and daughter having some kind of exchange or, you know, those kinds of things are going to be very difficult to get at unless you're doing ethnographic research and actually watching it or being a participant in whatever event is happening or, um, you know, those kinds of methods that we use as anthropologists. I mean, participant observation is right at the center of what we do. So we're both part of what's happening and also an outsider. So to go back to that question that you were asking about kind of as a, are you objective or not? Are you changing or not? You're sort of always moving between the two um, in the sense that you're, you're there, you're involved, but you're not staring into a fishbowl either, right? You're right. having dinner with people. So, um, and you're getting a lot of new information from exactly and, and new information should shape um, the way your point of view and yeah. often lead to lots of changes. Yeah. Um, I was, I was curious. Oh, and then it just escaped me just now. Um, I was so so when you go down and talk with these families. Um, so what what kind of families are you working with and then writing about in your book? Because I I read the introduction. I ordered it off Amazon, <laughs> which I recommend all of my listeners doing. And for whatever right, reason, let's get those royalties up. Um, yeah, for whatever reason, it took like three high. weeks. <laughs> and and so I didn't I didn't uh, I wasn't yeah. able to do proper research. Yeah, this. I have a colleague actually who just got her royalty check for her academic book, and she said she was, I think she said she was going to a sandwich shop to treat her husband to lunch. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's about the the amount that we're talking about. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so I the research I as I mentioned, I first met folks here in the U.S. in Albuquerque, and. I was doing research with people whose lives crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. So I often, I even talked to people sometimes in Mexico, and then I would see them years later in here in the United States or the other direction, right? As, and as I've done this work with deportation, um, I also uh, worked with people who were deported. I knew them here in the U.S., and then they were deported, and I also interviewed them in Mexico. So um, so the in intimate migrations, the kinds of questions I was asking is, how is it that family life is shaped by, essentially by state policy, by immigration policy, something that seems so kind of macro or removed from everyday life in families. But part of what I was trying to uncover was the ways that you know, decisions being made in D.C. Um, are having very concrete effects on the li on the daily lives of people on the ground here in the United States, but also in places far from the United States. So um, those that was the question that was guiding what I was trying to do. And I talked with all kinds of folks. I talked with 
you know, men and women, people of all ages. I worked with a lot of children. I mean, I've even worked with children as young as preschoolers, um, having them draw pictures of their families, for example, and they'll draw pictures of how their families are situated in Mexico or the United States and, um, and you know, trying to understand what meaningful relationships look like, what it takes to maintain those when you have this, you know, one of the most prominent international borders, literally between your family, you know, dividing right. your family. So those are the you know, that 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 was what was driving that research. I mean, I've since been doing research about deportation, which is um, even heavier, unfortunately. I mean, it's a it's had a devastating effect on families. And um, um, yeah, I know for a comedian, it's not. No, I, I don't no. know. It, this is I'm very yeah. very interested in. <laughs> it's hard to. And all of this. This isn't. I, this, yes. I know this isn't comedy time. <laughs> no, no, is, I know. Uh, this is interesting. I know, but I, I feel, I do feel like honestly, when I talk to people about my research, it kind of, it just kind of brings everyone to a, you know, there's only so far you can go. It's, it's, it's an issue that is, um, incredibly hopeless in a lot of ways. Like, uh, but. I guess one of the things I've been struck by is that even in the in these profound states of suffering that I've seen people in, that they're they move forward. I mean, it's um, you know it really does tell you about human experience in some pretty important ways. Could you give just like a, a couple? I have a bunch of questions mm-hmm. now, and I rem- remembered my okay. question from before. But could you just give like a couple of maybe? a little more specific examples mm-hmm. of some of those families. Some of the families, uh, sure. Uh, yeah, of, of who's going where and, yeah. and, yeah. Okay, so a typical, like, I'll, um, one family, I'll call them the Garcias. Um, that for exa- is racist. <laughs> That's racist? No, I'm no. <laughs> no, we use, we use pseudonyms in, right. um, but there actually are Garcias where yeah, I work. Yeah. So. No, I so. it's just like a very broad um, <laughs> I was just trying to make a quick joke to uh, brighten the mood. Right. right. All right, go, go on. Yeah, see, this is the thing about my research. <laughs> there, it's, it, there isn't really a way out in terms of humor, but um, I can try. Uh, but yeah, so, so this family... Um, they are they were all living in Mexico. They were born everyone in the family was born in Mexico. And when the father was he had come, he went, he came to the US and went back and came and went back several times um as an undocumented migrant. And then and So he's going, coming to the US trying to earn money, some money and then Usually working trying to in get back to hopefully be spend as much family time as he can possibly get. Well, and also because a lot of the people I work with are the well, everyone in this in these different communities for the most part are farmers. They're bean farmers. Um they grow uh, different varieties of pinto beans. Um and so they also it's also really important to the men in the community to be able to go back to Mexico to maintain their farms. And in fact, this is a uh, challenge, obviously, especially as the border has become increasingly difficult to pass and um, it's become more dangerous, it's become more expensive to go back and forth. Um, and especially in recent years, it's 
essentially, from what people have told me, cartels are controlling almost all of passage across the border. So, um, so it can be extremely challenging. So what happens is... I watched some terrifying documentaries on Netflix uh, uh, last week. It was like, because it's documentaries, <laughs> like, I'll wait and hear it from her. And, yeah. But, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like they were exaggerating all of that much. It, Sadly, it, it I mean, this seemed, is... The, it yeah. seemed horrific. It is horrific. And, you know, Mexico... I, so I, as I mentioned, I've been traveling there uh, for, you know, long-term research off and on since 2001. Prior to 2008, it was honestly the safest place I've probably ever traveled or been, um, safer than cities here in the U.S. And in 2008, things changed. You know, it, the area where I work is a it's a contested zone. Um, it's a it's the major roads out of the country, so there was a lot of uh, fighting that was going on in terms of trying to control those major roots um and so yeah things changed uh, around 2008 it's i got the sense that maybe agriculture was shifting too it was it was getting harder to compete with um like um u.s exports well that was yeah exactly that's driving a lot of like the to go back to the garcias that um the father of that family wanted to maintain his farm but it became increasingly difficult because it was hard for him to go back and forth. So he ended up staying several years here in the U.S. Eventually his oldest sons, when they became often what I would consider a boy or what we would be likely to consider a boy, 13, 14, um, will often migrate um, on their own autonomously. So they'll cross the border. In this case, they crossed to join their father and were working I think they were working as busboys, um, you know, busing tables um, at a restaurant. And and then the the woman and her younger children were staying in Mexico. And that's a really common way that migration has been structured um, for many years, for decades. Um, since, since amnesty and then since in the 90s was when legislation – increase the stakes of coming here without papers. Um, there was legislation in 1996 under Clinton that that really changed that changed that. Do you do you feel like that's deterred anyone wanting to? I mean, yeah, it, 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 it it's deterred a lot of people. Oh no, <laughs> I was agreeing with you that uh, that it, no, it has not. I, yes. I mean, I mean, it seems like um, it seems it seems almost like. What nightclubs do, where it's like yeah. you close these doors, you start a line outside. Uh, there's nothing really yeah. sp- all that special inside, but because there's this big line outside, people go, "Ooh, look at that! Yeah. Everyone wants to go there. That's the cool place to go." And and then and now there's just a line because there's a line. Do you do you feel like people's um, um, perhaps Me- Mexicans' perception of what America is going to be is in line with what they end up getting when they when they do get here? Well, I think because the communities where I work, there's been such a long history of movement between Mexico and the United States. And beginning in the 40s, there was a program called the Bracero Program where our government contracted with primarily men from the region where I work in Mexico to come and work in agriculture here in the U.S. So that really started, I mean, this is one of those stories that, 
again, I think in, in sort of popular discourse or the public, when the public talks about immigration, they think of it as individuals want to come to the U.S., right? They're coming, knocking on the door. They're looking for the American dream. But in fact, it's this, it has this long history where it was actually initiated by our government and by policies that our government put in place. So, so these, the families I work with, they all have fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers who came to the United States as agricultural workers through the Bracero program. Virtually everyone, everyone I, I know has a family member who did that. So, um, so in that sense, I think they have a pretty realistic sense of what, what the United States is and, and they're, they're struggling to get by. You know, this is not about, I mean, there are cases where people want to be here for their families in the sense that they want their children, for for example, educated here. Um, That's another driving factor. But for the most part, it is trying to provide for your family. Like it, it really boils down to that. Um, And, you know, who wouldn't go, whatever, to the next town like you did, 45 minutes away right. to get the job that there is. Right? Actually, a lot of people, a lot of people in the <laughs> U.S. have, they gloat about their freedoms and everything else. Mm-hmm. And these small towns that I travel to all over the country, and they go nowhere oh, with, with, mm-hmm. with these wonderful freedoms they're always gloating about. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't ever go out and see anything. And like the idea of them having to move to a different state or something like mm-hmm. that would be they would just never that seems terrifying to them and uh, and to think that yeah. there's all these hard working um people in Mexico that are so desperate and trying to make this long trek and um, Yeah and and even like the people I work with they may not have ever been to Zacatecas is a city that's close the closest capital city to where I work um and it's about 2 hours away most people have never been there but they've been to Albuquerque or they've been to L.A. or they've been to Dallas. Right. Um, so it's a really interesting. I'm kinda, I, I, mm-hmm. have, I don't know much about Wisconsin. I probably know yeah. more about the rest of the country. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you feel like so? So you you are um, influenced by your work. Do you feel that your um, presence and your work um, influences them? To me, mm-hmm. I think a hard part and obviously I don't know anything about this, but a hard part would be um, to have people, to observe people acting naturally and and to tease apart when someone tells you something or what they put in a survey and then what you observe. And I mean, I've done, I've, I've done like TV things where they had me like interact with family and, on television sort of thing. And it's like with a your very, family. With, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually, it never went on anything. Like reality but, TV or something? Yeah, I uh. did this thing for Last Comic Standing. They, oh, okay. they wanted to film stuff with my family, and then it ended up they didn't use any of it. But it was probably because of how horrifically <laughs> stilted it was. But it, was, it wasn't in any way how we would normally act. Right. Oh, okay, and, I see. What, yes. And, um, Indeed. Mm, and, all, and along those same lines, um, you know, uh, my um, any girlfriend that I've ever had or lived with or whatever, we'd be cleaning for three days and right. fighting for three days straight, and like, 
at each other's throats getting ready for a company and then right. company shows up and we like just got done cursing <laughs> each other and then open the door well hello Smiley, yeah. uh, nice, nice to, uh, we're so happy you're here and look at what a wonderful couple we mm. are and um so do you yeah uh, do you see any correlations there between maybe how you influence yeah absolutely i think that that's again part of the reason that anthropology relies on long-term research because you can't come into a setting for a few hours and understand what's happening there and as you mentioned people will say one thing they'll do another they'll they'll talk about what they do in a third way you know there are all these different kind of configurations of um and and you can understand that in your own life right there's there's kind of one way that that. i mean i broke my feet um you know in may and and then i had to crawl down this mountain and everything and every time i tell the story the length of time that it took me to go down it gets (laughs) longer and longer and you know i become more of a hero in the story and um and, and so and uh, along those same lines, I could tell you what I'm going to do today, uh, and it's going to it will be a lot of ambitious things, mm-hmm. and I will do none of those. <laughs> none right, of those and so things. when you were asking if I were to study you, um, right. right, I could interview you, I could formally interview you, I could talk to you about what you're going to do, but then I could also, I would probably find out a lot more by having... If we went out for dinner and we had more informal conversations, um, or if I came and moved in, are you saying you're for- not incredibly comfortable <laughs> sitting here in front of these weird studio <laughs> mics, as like students are going by glass and, and watching us? This isn't exactly how you would be talking in normal life. <laughs> well, if you were trying to, if I was doing an ethnography of a comedian, for example, then I might, um, yeah, I maybe. You know, you'd move in. I'd move in for a week and probably get. <laughs> you're like, please no. This is a TV but, show. Yeah. This is you moving in and following me. Well, Actually, the, I, I sort of am living in my car for the next two months, so I hope so you're I would fine be, with the I would be seat. in the back seat of the car. So, um, but you can imagine that that you're going to get a completely different story. And I mean, there have been all kinds of examples where that's happened in my research. You know, even people I know really well when I talk to them. For example, through a formal interview and I'm recording, they talk about it in a different way, um, perhaps, or they're not as forthcoming or um, or they might feel uncomfortable in certain ways. Um, and then when you turn off the recorder, other things happen and other things are said. And I, I've had examples of that. One example um, that I write about in the book was when um, I said to, I kept asking this woman, well, so what's an, I- what, describe to me an ideal man. You know, what would be, who's an ideal man? What would he be like? And she kept saying, I can't answer that question because there's no such thing. You know, she just kept saying, I don't even know what to do with that because it's not possible. Um, and, and then we turned off the recorder and she was making dinner and cleaning the kitchen. And, and then she started saying, you know, what my husband's got to do if he really wants to be a good man and be a good father is, and a good husband is he's got to go to the he's got to go to the U.S. He's got to make money. It's not working for him to stay here. It's you know we're struggling, and so she you know she basically answered my question, but it wasn't when the recorder right. was on. So that's why I think in, as an anthropologist, time you need to spend time with people and you need to to be attentive to the everyday experiences, to the mundane, to the what might seem mundane, but then ends up being important. Um, you know, that's what we really are looking for as anthropologists is 
gathering all that's happening around us, all the exchanges that we're having with people, and then building your analysis from there. Um, that is, uh, that's fantastic. That's exactly. So that you could be an, uh, yeah, I think you're, what you were saying before about an, an anthropologist job being, we are lucky. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a, a pretty amazing job. I mean, I feel like an anthropologist. You, you know, sometimes. I think that maybe there are some parallels with comedians. Yeah. I don't know. I go well, to with a academics, lot of certainly. small towns and I interact with a lot of mm-hmm. people after shows and everything and, and, um. And then knowing the difference between someone coming up to me right after the show and the kind of way that they carry themselves or mm-hmm. maybe want an autograph or a picture or maybe don't or maybe want to avoid me because maybe I said a joke that made them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Variety of different responses. And then sitting down in the bar and mm-hmm. having a drink with somebody right. is a completely uh, different thing. And, um, and, and, and noticing the differences and similarities between... Um, different regions and different cultures and a lot of times different clubs different clubs in the same city one one club has one kind of feel mm-hmm. to it and mm-hmm. an audience that they've cultured and another club has a different kind of audience that they've cultured and um, and so even even in a 10 mile radius you can get completely different kinds of people um, so yeah that's uh, it's your your job seems very very interesting to me, um, and this seems extremely interesting to me. Which you told me over the phone that you've been doing some anthropological work at Burning Man. Yes, that is actually that's one of those things that people say. Oh, come on, that's not really work, is it? <laughs> <laughs> You're not being honest with me or yourself. Um, yeah, I've been uh, conducting research there for seven years, I think now, and um, I've been collaborating with. Um, well, my husband is also, as I mentioned, a cultural anthropologist. He's been doing research there. And uh, Carolyn White, who's an archaeologist in, in my department here at University of Nevada, Reno, she is uh, a historic archaeologist. So she's been looking at it from archaeological perspective and using archaeological methods. And I've been looking at it ethnographically and especially kind of questions of community and how communities delineated in the, in these in some ways, it's related to my other research. First but. off, what is Burning Man? <laughs> okay. Um, that's why, because a lot of listeners probably don't know. Oh, and, okay. And I've um, I've only been? been told. I've oh, ne- you haven't attended been. the event? I, I've been to small things that I've told are very similar to it and that there's like lots of burners. There are a lot of regional events that happen and that's one of the things I'm interested in 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 my research is kind of looking at the burner diaspora or the the way that the community reaches far beyond the Black Rock City which so Burning Man is a you know sometimes people don't want to call it a festival it's it, it really is it sort of defies definitions in a lot of ways but it's an event that happens once a year Originally, it happened in the Bay Area in San Francisco um, and and then several years later moved here um, because of problems they were having with um, permitting and they were having issues with law enforcement. And, um, and so they came out here to the desert, essentially, to, um, to the Black Rock Desert to, to have the event take place here because the, the, the large – the culmination of the of the week long event is burning of this man, which is a, a wooden statue um, 
and that 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 has been part of the event from the beginning. That was the point of the first event. But it's a it's a it's a time. It's so many things. It's a time for artists to come together. It's a um, it's grown into being. The, I think when it's I think the current figures are when it's in when the event is happening the last week of August. Um, it runs through Labor Day. Um, and when that event is happening, it's the third largest city in Nevada. Um, so Black Rock City, as it's called, ends up being the one of the largest populated spaces in the state of Nevada. How many um, people go? Well, it's been over 60,000 most recently, right? So it started out with hundreds or less than that and then moved up to you know, more than 60,000. So um, it just keeps growing every year. And it is a... You know, for, as an anthropologist, there's all kinds of, I mean, you could do research there forever. Um, you know, there's just so much happening. There are, it's a city. It, so there are, there's a public works department. There's a, what they call the Department of um, Mutant Vehicles. There's. Uh, Mutant Vehicles? What, the DMV. The, the art cars? The DMV, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there, um, you know, there's very little very, very limited commerce. They're essentially, they, they have a coffee shop um, and they sell ice. So those are the only two uh, forms of commerce that you need to come completely prepared. And people have very elaborate, I mean, there are elaborate structures, cities that are built uh, or sort of uh, cities within cities or camps, these large theme camps um, that have, you know, hundreds of people. So it's a, it's a, it really is like no other event. I don't. I mean, there are obviously festivals around the world that you can draw some comparisons with, but um, there's nothing like it. And I had a friend that just went and came back from it, and he was like, "He's like, yeah, they like some people just set up like this old timey saloon, and they had all of this forty year old whiskey." Um, that was like this amazing whiskey and they were just giving it to everybody right. because they just like this whiskey and they right. wanted everyone else to share and mm-hmm. like it as well. I mean, it is true. That, that is very, <laughs> very different than any other yes. festival where you're getting overpriced little weird drink tickets and everything else. Well, and self-reliance is one of the the values of, um, of Burning Man. And yet I think, you know, you certainly could go there and survive for the week right people would give you food and drink i mean people do have a sense of community and take care of one another i mean obviously if everyone did that (laughs) it wouldn't work um but um yeah it's a very interesting place to do research it's a very educated group of people um again i've heard some statistics about it being one of the highest per capita phd communities in the country um when it's in place um People are always re- sort of reflecting on the the event. It's um, it's a really interesting place to do research, and and it does have some some ties to my immigration research. I mean, not uh, obviously they're very different situations, but uh, but the idea that someone would form a community that they a pl- uh, there's a place that they don't spend most of the time, but they are yet they are connected to people in that place throughout oh. the year. So that uh, that is something that I've thought a lot about is how community transcends these borders or extends across time or space um, in ways that is similar to what immigrants experience. 
Uh, so are you a burner? Well, absolutely. Yourself? See, okay. I'm a participant observer. So um, right. as a, you know, that's another example of where the kind of research you're doing, you could not, you know, if you came out there in some kind of lab coat, right, you know, right. with your clipboard or something, that that isn't going to be very effective for understanding what's happening there. Right. So. Um, that makes sense. And what, last question, what is, um, actually, I have a couple other okay. very quick things, but um, one goofy question. What, like, what's the most important um, thing that you've learned from Burning Man before we do the serious mm. stuff? Okay. Um, well, I think that the, the, one of the things about Burning Man is that it, it, not saying it wasn't serious, but right. not as dark as... <laughs> right, 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 right. I understand. Um, one of the things is that just the dynamic nature of community, I think, is um, is fascinating. And that people will form communities, you know, people will support each other and come together in particular ways in any setting. I mean, that is human, in terms of human experience or a drive that we have to be with others, to connect with others. I think that's, you know, that runs throughout my research. I think that that the way that people will creatively come up with strategies to do that or, or not even that intentional, that, you know, that we rely on one another, that that to be human is to be with other humans, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, that, that, that we're social and, and you can see that in these different, envi- even though the environments are, incredibly different um there's that kind of common thread that i mean prisoners hang out with one another absolutely yeah play cards and have laughs and everything else yes if if they were outside of that prison they would want nothing to do with that we depend on we depend on each other in in really significant ways and and you can see that in well in at least in the different settings where i've done research you know, I've also done research in a historic neighborhood in in Las Vegas, for example, and you know to see how communities formed there. I mean, that's kind of one strain that runs throughout my research interests. Okay, a charity of the week. Plug your uh, charity. CDM, yes, the um, the Center for Migrant Rights, um, and it is an organization that was started. I think it was started nine years ago by some attorneys who are from the U.S. And they practice here in the U.S., but they try cases with plaintiffs from Mexico, um, and they're primarily labor cases. But um, just a really interesting group that is trying to make connections across borders in terms of, you know, the reality of people's lives, that they you have people in Mexico who um, – whose cases need to be heard here in the U.S., for example, and because they have been employees of different companies here. And so they're just a, a really interesting organization that's trying to do innovative things around um, migrant rights. So. That's wonderful. Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, about this and, and um, you know, just kind of the suffering and what, what, can, mm-hmm. what they can possibly go through. So I... In May, uh, which was a few months, I don't know when this is coming out, but anyhow, um, almost four months ago, I jumped, I was goofing around hiking, jumped off a thing that was too high, 
I broke both my feet, couldn't really care for myself, so I cleared my schedule. I couldn't really work, and then flew home um, and moved in with my with my parents, mm-hmm. and they cared for me and supported me and got me food and everything else and um, paid. Uh, it, you know, I had some insurance that paid for bills and and walk me through and and I'm on my way to recovering. I got a um, elaborate surgery and um, walk me through um, Mr. Garcia in a in a similar situation. Mm. He is a roofer, falls off, mm-hmm. breaks both of his heels at the same time. What happens? To the I've Garcia worked with family? people in some. I mean, maybe not both heels, but um, I've definitely no, worked I, with people but, in similar situations. And it's um, incredibly stressful because they cannot, they don't have any kind of health care. Um, often they are working for employers that, even though legally they need to be providing them with some kind of disability or workers, um, some kind of workers' comp or insurance around the fact that they, you know, were injured on the job, um, they rarely get that because as Folks who are undocumented, they they have no leverage, right? And that that's part of what CDM is trying to do is is to make spaces for those rights, even where there may not be a lot of space. Um, but I have known. I'm thinking of one man who essentially had to stop working. He's not documented. His wife isn't either, um, and they are they are struggling in significant ways. So it's there aren't a lot of answers for. Um, you know, again, people do what they have to to survive and to get by. Um, they're getting help from other family members, uh, but they, yeah, it's even it's not even it, it was difficult for you, but That's it's it's saying. almost uh, yeah, it's insurmountable uh, I, I mean, for someone else potentially. Yes, privileged life, uh, exactly. considering uh, the alternative and, yeah. and what other people are going through. Um, so cdmigrate.org, uh, uh, go there, um, donate, participate, feel good about yourself. Uh, thank you, Deborah, thank Bain, you. For, for coming on thanks the for, show. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, this was uh, fantastic. This is what I hoped it would be. Great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Share this with everyone you know. Share it on Twitter, Facebook, get a megaphone, walk down the street yelling and screaming. Uh, You don't have to yell and scream if you're using a megaphone because it will amplify your voice. You can still talk louder and should still um, uh, project further. I think that's how megaphones work. I haven't had a guest on talking about megaphones yet. Um, But uh, speaking of upcoming guests, next week on the podcast, I'm in Michigan talking to Todd Shackelford about sperm competition. Oh my gosh, guys. If you don't know about sperm competition... You are in for a treat. And if you do know about sperm competition, then you already know that you're in for a treat. And I don't even need to tell you to tune in next week because you are chomping at the bits. All right. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. You're my heroes. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello. 
I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. (laughs) He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my girlfriend, a, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> 